before we go to God's word, let's go to him in prayer again. Oh, gracious God, heavenly Father, Lord, we do with anticipation come to your word, wanting to hear from you because you are worthy and mighty and worthy of our praise. And we long to hear from one such as you. Lord, would you give us truth this morning? Would you show us yet again our sin and your greater grace that covers our sin because of Jesus Christ? And may we come to know him more closely this morning, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So as we're finishing up Advent, again, we've been looking at the idea taken from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia that something in that Bethlehem stable happened that was bigger than our whole world. And we're seeing how huge, if you will, the incarnation is, how big Advent was that Jesus Christ came down, that God became man and dwelt among us, lived for us, and even died for us and was raised for our life. So as we finish out this, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 40. And while you're turning there, it's printed for you in total in the ESV translation. But I want to kind of get our mindset into this. When I was a senior in high school, our guidance counselor brought me into the office. And she was a little flaky. She was known for being a little flaky, but, you know, oh well. So she gave me this scholarship application. She told me this was a really big scholarship. I needed to fill out this application. And I had to turn in this research paper. And it was going to be judged by the governor's staff. And if I won, it was going to be representing the state of Tennessee. And it was going to be a statewide scholarship. So we were talking some serious money. And I was very excited. And she said, I'm only asking you to do this out of everybody. I think, I think this is something right up your alley. So I researched and researched and wrote this essay. It took me like about a month of a lot of work. It was really hard. And I, I edited it. And sent it in and it turns out I won for the whole state of Tennessee I was so excited she brought me into the office and she's planning on the days I'm going to miss class to go and stay in the hotel in Nashville and go to this big reception the governor himself is going to present me the award and they got to the question like right great she never told me how much what's the scholarship how much money and she was oh there's no money this is just this is just recognition and I said excuse me there's no money she goes, yeah, but it's big recognition, and having this on your resume will help you get, in, get into college. Like, I'm already accepted. I'm going to college. I want money. I don't want recognition. I'm not going. No, I'm not. The principal talked to me. He goes, this would be really good for the school if you go. It looks bad. If, I'm not going. I am not going. I refused to go. I didn't go to Nashville. They mailed me some big medal and a, a plaque. I have no idea where it is today. I just, whatever. I was so disappointed. All that work for nothing. For nothing. I wanted money. The administration was very disappointed in me, and they let me know that. It, you, even though you're a second semester senior in high school, we could make your life miserable. And Anyway, it was a very disappointing second semester because of some of that. Have you ever been disappointed? Now, on the grand scale of disappointments, that's not a biggie. I admit that. I've had worse, but let's not share those publicly. But have you all been disappointed? Have you ever anything in your life that just let you down? Well, the people in Isaiah's day, since we're kind of jumping here in the middle of Isaiah, they were also mired in disappointment. The ministry of Isaiah was one of bad news, a lot of bad news. He had explained why things were going to go badly. Then he got the privilege of explaining why things were going badly because he got to live through them, that Israel had sinned, Israel had broken covenant with God, and they were being disciplined. But that's not the final word. Starting here in chapter 40, the book of Isaiah makes a U-turn and stops talking about the bad and starts looking ahead to the coming good for God's people. 
Isaiah gets to bring good news. He's happy about this now. God's going to do something amazing by his grace. And so, beginning in chapter 40, he starts with a great word of comfort. So would you look with me at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is God's word. Boys and girls, I know that's a long passage, so make sure if you're still here with us that you have your children's bulletin. You have your own translation in there of this passage. Hopefully it makes uh, some more sense to you. and We'll be going over that together, and I'll even share with you a couple peeks at that adults that I think might help us understand this text easier as well. So where we're going to go today, I want to give you a, a sentence, a theme to help you remember this. Perhaps at lunch when you're talking about the sermon, you can remember this, or throughout the week at family worship after dinner or something. Here's where we're going to go today. God's comfort comes through Jesus Christ. And his care remains within his people. So we're going to see that. We're going to see that when God proclaims comfort, we see that comfort in his glory. We see that comfort in his word. We see that comfort among his people. But only if we're part of his people. So the the repeated refrain at the very beginning, comfort, comfort, kind of sets the tone. They had disobeyed God. They had gone after all sorts of idols. They'd been exceedingly unfaithful. Bad things were happening as promised. And into that reality, God comes and through Isaiah and proclaims comfort. If you were here Christmas Eve, this is actually the verse in the passage that Simeon had in mind when he proclaimed Jesus to be the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel was when Isaiah 40 would come true. That's what they were looking forward to. And Simeon said, Jesus is it. But even for Simeon, Holding the baby Jesus, for him, that was an ancient promise. And it's even more ancient to us. But this message for comfort, even though it's so ancient, is for us today. Our hope, our comfort rests on the same promise that Simeon looked back to. So let's see what Isaiah tells us about this comfort. The first thing he shows us is the comfort of God's glory. 
Beginning with verse 3, God tells us that he's going to send someone amazing. In a way that their culture would understand, he helps them understand this person's a big deal. He tells them in verse 3 through 5 that comfort comes in a significant person. Perhaps the most important person ever. They would see that in these verses, and here's how. My high school that I just talked about had this really nice, very immaculate, kind of huge amphitheater right out front. And in the four years that I was at that school, they had never used it. And I asked somebody about that. They said, oh, well, let's see, what year do you graduate? Oh, well, right before your freshman year, President Bush, that would be, because I'm old, that would be George Herbert Walker Bush, not his son. Who? So he came to our high school. And because he came and was going to give a speech, they built this amphitheater, and they used it for that, and they've never used it since. Because that's government spending 101, right? So, but because someone important was coming, they had to make preparations and do this big work. And that's exactly what's happening here in Isaiah. When ancient kings would come to visit their people, the towns would smooth out the roads in town. They would go out as far as they could between the town and the wilderness and try to smooth that, make it really nice, make it immaculate, make it straight, try to make it level, because that was how they would show honor to a coming king. So here's what Isaiah is saying. You follow me now? Isaiah says that this coming one is so glorious He is to be honored so much that the only appropriate preparation for this one is to level the mountains and to take all that material and toss it into the valleys. Turn this up and down area into a solid flat plain. Just level everything for him. Because the king who is coming is the God of glory himself is coming. He's so glorious, the mountains must be cast down. The valleys must be filled. In other words, let no obstacles stop his coming. Make this way clear, because you want this one coming. I love that picture, that no obstacles can stop this one from coming. The glorious grace of God will not be stopped when he commissions it and sends it. I mean, you realize what this, what this means is that if the mountains and valleys of Palestine can't stop him, then the ups and downs of our life, of your life, your successes and your failures, they can't stop him either. No obstacles in our lives can stop him from sending his grace once he says it's coming. So don't listen to that voice in your head that says you're too bad or you're too sinful. You've messed up too much. You've failed one too many times for God to forgive you, for God's grace to come. You've blown it. Neither mountains nor your failures can stop the grace of God from coming to you. That's comfort. That's an amazing promise. And it's so amazing that everybody's going to see it. Boys and girls, look with me at your verse 5. Look what he says to them about how famous this is going to be says the actual glory of the lord will be seen it won't be a secret god promises hopefully when we read that boys and girls those verses three through five about throwing down mountains and making everything level hopefully because your sunday school classes have sounded a little familiar because that's what was used to describe the coming of john the baptist and if you remember boys and girls john the baptist prepared the way for remember for jesus himself So we know here that Jesus, boys and girls, is this coming glory Isaiah is talking about. Jesus comes as the glory of God to comfort God's people. 
It's as, it's as if God wanted to give his people a hug here in Isaiah. It's been bad news. I want to give y'all a hug. But God is spirit. He has no arms. And so he takes a body through Jesus Christ so he can wrap those arms around his people and bring consolation and comfort. Now, for the adults listening to me talking to the children that way, don't, don't dismiss what I just said as sappy or just for kids. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. The incarnation, Christmas, is bigger than our whole world because God came down to be with us. He wanted to be among his people, and so he came down. Jesus shows us that the glory of God is here, and it's bigger than our whole world if we really get used to it, if we really accept that. Because in that glory, he wants to transform us and change us. Glory is such a church word that even as I say those things, I know you're not getting it. Glory is one of those words we use all the time, but we just don't get it, right? It's, it's a churchy thing. And I mean, don't raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass anybody. But seriously, Monday through Saturday, is the word glory on your vocabulary? Do you hear it often? Do you use it often? Right, exactly. So what does glory mean? We don't really have an English translation of glory. The best we can do is to take the idea of significance and Big word, sorry boys and girls, ostentation, showing off. Take significance and ostentation and put them together and that's glory. So Jesus Christ is the significance of God. He's also the ostentation, the showing off of God. See here, again, we don't quite get this. In the ancient world, if you wanted to impress, when a king would come to impress somebody, he would not just bring an entourage of his helpers, but he would bring a partial display of his wealth especially if he was going to meet another king. He, the display would include trains of captive people, slaves from other lands, examples of animals, a, a, a zoo, a menagerie, if you will, from other lands. Here's the animals under my domain. Gold, of course, treasure, gems, everything to show off. Look at how important and how significant I am. The whole point was to show off how significant he was the ostentation was meant to show his power even today we still do that a little bit right dress to impress we've all heard that certain occasions demand you wear a little bit more jewelry or things certain certain occasions don't even today to use our cultural slang right people use bling to impress there's a certain amount of bling you wear to walmart which is none and there's a certain amount of bling you wear if you're going to go to like the live theater right We get this. We still do the same thing. So in this context, bear with me, Jesus Christ is the personified glory of God. Jesus Christ is meant to show off how powerful God is. And so in other words, Jesus is God's bling. That's what glory means. Now y'all are like, can can you get away with saying that? Is he going to get in trouble? Jesus is God's bling. This is how God shows off how significant and powerful. Look at my son. See, when we look at the Son, we see the power of God for salvation over the sin in our hearts that we know is there and over the sin in our world that we know is there. God is more powerful than that, and he proves it by showing us Jesus Christ if we see him. Because when we see Jesus, we see the glory of God. We see the power he has to bring comfort, even in our disappointments. This text also shows us the comfort in God's word, though. 
verses uh, 6 through 8 present some of the most comforting verses in Scripture. But they're very confusingly written, and so it's very easy to miss. What's going on here, before I explain it to you, is Isaiah, Isaiah knows himself. He knows his people. They are weak, weak sinners. They can't stand God's glorious presence. And so he asks in verses 6 through 7, how can God's coming glory be good news for sinners? They're so weak. It will destroy them. How is this good news? Again, this is really confusing, especially the English translation. So let's all look together at the kids' translation of it. I tried to work it out. Look at me at verses 6 through 7 in the kids' translation. Here's, here's how it goes in the Hebrew. God commanded, now he's speaking, proclaim this. But I, being Isaiah, said, how can I? Your people are as weak as grass and wildflowers. The grass dies and the flowers fall in the hot wind. So too your people will fall under the breath of God. How is your glory good news? That's Isaiah's conundrum. I know you're so glorious. Your people are so sinners. How is this going to work? And then God answers with that famous verse from verse 8. But now let's look at it in this context. God answers says, yes, you're right. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Why is God's glory such good news? Because God promises that it will be. That's the answer. God says, I know it doesn't make sense. I know weak people can't handle it, but I promise it's going to be good news. You've got to trust me on this one, Isaiah. See, boys and girls, since we use your translation, do, uh, do, do mom and dad ever say, because I said so? You hate that, don't you? I know, I hated that too. And I've, I, I've even said that to my kids. I know, I'm sorry. See, it ends the discussion. There's nothing more to say. But when God says it, it gives us hope. God says his coming glory in a person is good news because I said so. Let that assurance sink deep into your heart. Let that assurance sink in deep. God knows we're weak. He knows we're feeble. He knows we're prone to failure. He knows that his glory, his power, his significance coming to people is scary, not comforting. He knows that. And so he promises that his glory, when it comes as a person, will show power through love, compassion, and comfort. He promises. He knows it doesn't sound right. But God's glory will come as a person to bring comfort. We can believe it. In spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our doubts, we can believe that because God says so. And that can be assurance to your heart if you'll believe it. Now, there's great grace and comfort here in God's word. But this text also shows us the comfort that's within God's people. So God's glory is coming in a person, he says. God promises it will bring hope and comfort. Then explicitly at the end of verse 9, the text says this person will be God himself. You can't get around it. It's right there. Behold your God. And then it goes on to describe him as mighty and powerful. And it's as if he knows we still doubt. If he knows that this is too much comfort, it sounds too good to be true. So check out what he does with verse 10. As he's talking about this person, he says in verse 10, look, his reward is with him. And then he says his recompense is before him. So he brings with him the fruit of his victory and recompense, payment, paycheck. 
what he gets paid is in front of him. So he's coming to his payment. Okay, what's he talking about here? Again, I know this is kind of obtuse. This coming glory, who is God himself, the people he's coming to. This is you and me, by the way, are his reward. He's coming to his reward. He's coming to his payment. See, the incarnation is bigger than our whole world because this marvelous display of God's glorious power was all so that Jesus Christ could win a bride, us. He's coming to get this reward. He's coming to get this payment. We, dear Christians, the bride of Christ, are what Jesus receives as the reward for his work. Y'all are being so Presbyterian. That was like the best thing ever. Where's the amen? Seriously? Jesus Christ lived, died, and was resurrected so he could get you as his reward. If that doesn't deserve an amen, what are we doing here? We are the reward for this coming glorious king. And if that doesn't bring you assurance of God's love and your doubt, nothing will. Believe the promise of God. It is for the joy of having his people that Christ became one of us. He wants to be with us that much that he did this. And when he comes, what will this powerful, mighty Savior do? Look with me at verse 11. What does he do? He says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That is comfort during trial and disappointment. Through the power displayed in verse 10, Jesus will take care of his people. He will gather them together. He will support them. He will refresh them. This is a beautiful picture of living in the gospel. And notice... Verse 11 speaks of the care of the flock, not a lamb. This shepherding care is experienced in community, in the church, not in our closets at home. How many of you who are Christians here today are experiencing this shepherding care from Christ? How many of you would immediately go to this shepherding image to describe your walk with God through Jesus Christ? It's like, yes, Jesus Christ sustains me. He upholds me. I can tell in his life that he's comforting me. Or is it more of a hobby based on something that happened way back then? We said some words, walked down an aisle, did a thing. But it's not really an ongoing reality in our life. See, God has provided for that. He knows that's going to be one of our weaknesses. He has provided for that in the community of faith. The ongoing comfort and consolation of God's people takes place within God's people. Often that comfort is done through God's people in your life. The flock gathered together receives the care of the shepherd. Here's where I'm going with this. 2015 at Trinity is the year of relationship formation at Trinity. Your session, your other leaders, we are committed to seeing all of us experiencing the grace of God 
together in a deepening way. We're committed to seeing verse 11 happen in our community. You're going to hear a lot more about that in January. But let me just say, you're going to have all sorts of wonderful opportunities to be with God's people in real, thriving relationships of grace where shepherding care takes place, where growth takes place. It's going to be great. Your new officers especially are very excited about what's going to happen in 2015, and hopefully you will be too. So as we look forward, though, to experiencing that kind of shepherding care together, as we look forward to growing together in our faith in this coming year together, I must ask you, this is going to take place within God's people. Are you in? Are you one of God's people? I want to jump back because we skipped over. I want to jump back to verse 2. Look with me at verse 2. Here's what he says. He says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. See, the Scripture is clear. There's warfare going on. We are born into a state of rebellion against our Creator. The Bible calls it sin. And it's more than just the stuff we do. It's who we are in our nature. We are sinners. And And God promises that this coming glory the Lord Jesus Christ, he will end the warfare. The iniquity, the sin, verse 2 tells us, will be pardoned. God's people will then receive double for all our sins. Now, we in our fear and our doubt, we immediately think of that as punishment. No, it's not twice the punishment for our sins. It's twice the grace. Here's what's going on here. God is holy. He hates sin. And he doesn't just tell us, don't sin. What's the other thing he says? Be holy as I am holy. That's two commands. Don't and do. That's where the double for our sin comes in. See, Jesus Christ died the death we should have died. We know that. We're pounded that in church world all the time. We, we get Jesus Christ died for sinners. Jesus Christ died for sin. I'm forgiven because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We get that one. But that's only half the story. To use a financial analogy, if your sin is debt, the death of Christ gets you out of debt, it gets you to zero. So you're broke, but you're not in debt, which many of you are in the room are like, I'll take that, right? Okay, so anyway... That's where he gets us, spiritually speaking. Our sins are forgiven. We've taken care of the don't. But the other half of the story is the do. Be holy as I am holy. Again, maintaining the financial analogy. Be fabulously, unimaginably wealthy as I am. It's a command. So you better get out there and start earning, right? That's what we act like, right? Let's go earn it. Let's go get it. We've got to go be holy. No. Jesus Christ died the death we should have died, but the other glorious half of the story is Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived. He did obey. He did the do. Every time, every temptation, he said no. He was holy. And the essence of what takes place on the cross, the other half that we forget is absolutely God took our sins, he put them on Christ, and he crushed them. Jesus Christ died the death we should have died. But in that moment, the Bible says he also took that righteousness of Christ and he gives it to his people. And so he says, you are holy. Throughout the New Testament, 
We translate it as saints because it sounds better, but every time in the New Testament, Paul or Peter, when they address directly Christians, they call them saints. In Greek, you know what it is? Holies. To the holies at, the, at Rome, to the holies at Philippi, to the holy ones at Colossae, because we are counted as holy because of the work of Christ. We have received double for our sins. He gets us to, out of debt, and he makes us fabulously wealthy. That is what the glory of God through Jesus Christ does for us. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord, he forgives you and he makes you holy. And then he adopts you into his family and says, call me father. That's another thing. You realize, dear Christian, no one on earth has the right to call God father, but those who are united to his son, Jesus Christ. There is no universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of humanity that people like to talk about in Scripture. Okay, that's, that, that's like in 1 Liberal 3.7. That's not in Bible. Okay? Only Father God is to those who are in His Son, Jesus Christ, because He only adopts those who are counted as holy. And if that doesn't bother you just a little bit, you're not getting how awesome it is yet. It should make you stop and go, am I adopted into God's family? Do I really believe that? Because that is the glory of the gospel that he forgives us, he makes us holy, and then he adopts us and says, call me father. And then as part of that family, you can soak yourself in the comfort and grace of the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Now, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord like that, that incredible, comforting grace that comes to you in the gospel is available to you right now. I implore you, especially if you've been around church world, man, forget all that stuff you think you know about church. Forget all that stuff you think you know about Christianity and Bible and just hear this message and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to make you holy and then say, it sounds incredible, but please make me part of your family. And he will. And you will know this comforting care because God's comfort comes through Jesus Christ and his comforting care remains in his people. And if you've done that, either way back in the past or maybe in this moment, or maybe later on this week, come back and be part of building significant, growing, shepherding relationships this next year. It'll be worth it. You won't be disappointed. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for this incredible good news of comfort that you've given us through Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, the thought that in spite of, of our efforts, not because of our efforts, you forgive us, you make us holy, and then you adopt us. Oh Lord, that is amazing. Would you help us to be comforted in your grace? Would you help us to know Christ as our Savior? Lord, we ask that even now you would be true to your promise that as Jesus Christ is lifted up, he will draw all people to him. Would you do your work of salvation even this moment, Lord? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.